Hey listeners, this is Alex, your host of EOA, Entrepreneurs of Asia, a show where we have genuine conversations with founders, entrepreneurs, investors about their journey and the lessons they've learned that impact or benefit the Asia region. Today, we sit down with Dewan, a friend who I met through Dave Chang on episode 25. Dewan, I do have to apologize for being an American idiot and not realizing for one hour I pronounced your name with a terrible accent even though you corrected me in the beginning. Despite this, this is a very exciting episode. We have interviewed other founders in the co-working space before, but in this episode we've dived deep into the specifics. We hear about the history and evolution of co-working and what the future looks like. We get an insider perspective on Dewan's vision of how this industry will unfold and how one can take advantage of it. Especially as Dewan puts it, it's still very early days for co-working despite the past funding craze we saw a few years back. We also compare the co-working model and related to co-living, compare it to the house offline remodeling market, and along with the oil model as well. Also, Dewan gives us his view on how WeWork affected the industry. While much of the noise was cleared out from the WeWork fiasco, Dewan has doubled down and been toiling on his idea and will be reaping the benefits of what's to come in a post-pandemic world. If you want to learn about the secrets of co-working, listen to the first 40 minutes. However, I do promise the second part is equally compelling, learning about Dewan's non-linear path to entrepreneurship. We learn about his time in Boston, Los Angeles, California, and hear stories about slavery. If you're ready to learn, let's dive in and listen. Dewan, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's good to be here. <laughs> yes, we, yeah, we're doing it again. So today we have with us uh, Dewan Ung, right? Dewan. Uh, Dewan Ung. Yeah. Um, Okay, CEO and co-founder of Dojo since 2018. Yep, that's right. Uh, Dojo on his LinkedIn has a very fancy description. So why don't you tell us, what is Dojo in your own words? Ooh, that's a big one. That's a tough one. Nah, keep, it, <laughs> keep it concise, man. Um, what we're doing is um, agile property, essentially. Agile supply of property that can be as agile and as adaptive to demand. We okay. want um, our. We believe that our supply for real estate is um, has always been really fixed, yeah. and what we're noticing is that demand and tech changes and social changes is allowing us to use space in a very different way in much shorter terms, and so we need our spaces to be a lot more adaptive in keeping up with demand. Okay. So I guess uh, people want to hear about uh, your insights first, I think. They, they, they want to hear the meat. They want to hear the, the, the secrets. So well, we'll start off this first question then because uh, I think uh, essentially this falls under co-working of sorts, or at least it started that way, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So is, is co-working dead? No, no. Co-working will always be there somewhat, uh, but I believe it's evolving really quick. And co-working is kind of like a a new breed and a whole new direction of how to use space and it's really just the beginning. Um, okay. So the definition of co-working is really complicated um, and, and it's kind of loose there. Yeah. And, and I mean, I guess it kind of falls along with your definition of dojo. Um, so what would, how would you define co-working then? Um, your version. <laughs> yeah. There doesn't, there's, like you said, it's a complicated uh, definition. It's, there's probably many people describe it in different ways. I think we'll talk about this later. You know, it's gone through an evolution. And it's very fascinating that you're, you're saying that it, it's uh, evolving and just beginning now because it seems like it was kind of over the hump and people forgotten about it, right? And it's kind of in the past in some people's minds. Yeah. Um, I mean, like the most popular one you'll be hearing is that co-working has become a landlord play. So let's yes, unpack correct. that 
a little bit, right? If you, if you, if you take down the crux of what co-working space does is um, they cut spaces into a lot smaller units. They build community around that. Uh, they build a lot of buzz and, and, uh, and uh, activities to really attract people into the space. If you really think about that as like the scope of work function, that is the exact function of a landlord. Okay. Right? Is, is it though? And it's like, so now I think you're also talking about the very early traditional sense of how people understood co-working to be. Um, and then, you know, we could also talk later about this. They, they have gotten in, in the past years, you know, before we work crazy valuations around that. So essentially what you described plus a layer of, I don't know what that layer was, technology or some idea or some just. Uh, what, what it is, is it's, uh, it's operational layer. Right. Okay. Uh, traditionally, if you go back in time, landlords had a very, very straightforward job. Right? It's like I provide the space, I own the, I own the space, I provide it. Good luck to you. Right? Yeah, correct. That's exactly. Pretty much it, exactly. Right? Yeah. Right? And yeah. That, and it, it it primarily just competed on a hardware level. Right. Correct. Um, what locate? Great locations. How much? How many square feet? And that's that's about it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to take a more active and proactive approach to landlord, being a landlord, then you, what you can actually do is build that buzz around it. Right. Like take shopping malls for example. Um, how they would organize a whole bunch of events and a whole bunch of activity mm, to really attract good. people yeah. into that space. And kind of like that's kind of starting off in that operational level. So what you're seeing with co-working is the exact same layer, but doing being it done in an office working context, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so essentially you're talking about a very traditional model, which is just you know owning a piece of land. And you're talking, it's a very, a very good point. You bring up different kind of context and it could be in a commercial space, it could be in a residential space. And here it's, uh, you're playing in, I don't know, I guess somewhere in between, right? Like, I mean, it is, it is commercial, obviously, for, for offices. Uh, but we're also seeing the blurs of the lines of, of that relationship of disrupting the landlord of what they used to provide and what it is now, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, 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 like, there's, there's a huge push towards community, right? Community. And okay. uh, you're going to hear that buzzword all the time. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, primarily, if you think about it, uh, we probably live in the most isolated and lonely era in ever. And, and so living in these big cities, having a sense of community, meeting people is highly valuable. Can you qualify that? How, how are we living in the loneliest time? And, you know, is that a, isn't that something that someone would say in every generation or, or not? No, 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 no. It's definitely not. It's, 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 it's like individualism and moving to a new city has never been easier? more prevalent, right? It's yeah. easier than ever before. Um, What's driving that? Just, completely taken away from their core families and their core mm, friends, moving okay. to a new place for a job opportunity. Um, many of these people don't, and they work unbelievably long hours, right? Yeah. Uh, so the sense of, of, of making friends and building social connection has um, taken a hit. And so if you can create an environment in which you can meet a lot of people and you can develop good friendships and, and, and along the way, it's highly valuable, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the Harvard Law the Harvard University longest study into happiness ever. And no. they kind of did this. It's really cool. Uh, okay. Check it out. Um, they, they did a whole bunch of regression analysis with just every single criteria possible into figuring out what makes happiness. Right? Okay. And um, there was only one criteria that, that popped up the charts and way off the charts, right? And the most important criteria is quality of relationships. Yeah. That actually determines happiness, mm -hmm. right? So if you can create a space that 
enables people to drop their guard down, connect with one another. It is highly, like it's, it's, it's highly in demand. What's driving that macro trend, do you think? This, this evolution in access to being more mobile and leaving behind your, your communities and, and exploring and, uh, you know, I guess, is it, is it a rural migration from, you know, countryside to, to cities? And are, now, are we seeing the reverses that too now, or what, what, what's going on? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I think uh, you know, once you had the industrial revolution and everyone's coming and moving into the cities, kind of leaving away their family homes and, and, yeah. and their their origins, um, and moving to city for job opportunities, and then suddenly you have this uh, industrialization industrialization that happened for a really long time. Yes. Um, and we kind of left that community-based living that you know hunter-gatherer times uh, yeah. from a really um, long time ago. Well, it's kind of ironic then you're so saying... it's kind of like we're coming full circle back now. Yeah, so essentially what you're saying is industrialization caused people to band together physically, but in that kind of time period, uh, a different sense of community is lost. Probably a different kind of sense of community forms too. Um, now that we have COVID hitting and remote is more possible, right? Uh, we kind of have maybe a, a disbanding of that too, where, where now people probably will uh, be moving away from cities for one reason or another, like rising costs. You know, it's, there's no sense of community and they're going to even be even further disconnected, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think at the core of everybody, I think we do still want community. Right? Yeah. Right. I think that is how we evolved and how we came to be. We are highly yeah. social beings and we want to be able to connect and yeah. that, that's that's our core programming. That's what we're going to go back to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, the way you described uh, co-working, which is this, you know, bringing people, taking a space, cutting it up, bringing people together, layering on services and, and building community, right? That's kind of a, the modern way we think about co-working in the past 10 years, probably, right? With, with the rise of WeWork and everything. Oh, absolutely. Um, before we move on, why don't you tell us about the general history of how this, so you started around 2018, which is probably, the, you know, very, the very early stages of when it was getting hot and a lot of money was going into this idea, yeah, right? That's right. Uh, so what was the early history of this? What was the evolution? And then what happened and why are you saying now that this is just the beginning? So go back to the start. Sure. Um, like a lot of other people, we had an idea of, of this different ways of space usage and, and there was a huge rise in we work and I think we were seduced by that idea just like okay. a lot of other operators yeah. out there and we started off just as a co-working space um, you know we were tenants of a, of a building and, and uh, we cut up that space we built an amazing community over here uh, and and we just kept going that here, way. here in Malaysia right that's right yeah um, and so what we noticed is it, it, it was a crazy red ocean and everyone's competing against and trying to get out the exact same target market, right? We're talking yeah. about freelancers and we're talking about very early stage startups, uh, small SMEs. And the part that a lot of people don't realize is we can actually draw a spectrum of the most transient users to the most long-term of users, right? Yeah. And co-working and the offerings of co-working works perfectly for the first year. So anything below one year, it's mm, the most transient actually, yeah. of users, transient of users, that is the sweet spot. 
which is also the least like long-term wise that's the least sticky then right correct so that's a big problem correct correct so yeah. what you'll get is uh noticing that a lot of people actually end up graduating <laughs> yeah that's a good way of putting <laughs> it right pretty much graduating if, from if the business survives space. yeah that's right that's yeah. right so early stage startups and their most risky parts doesn't make sense to pay for office space doesn't make sense to pay for renovations um so what do they do they have a plug-and-play solution their requirements are very straightforward if you look at all co-working spaces um Every single room is pretty much identical. Yeah. Right? Um, sizes may vary a little bit, but just open workstations essentially, mm -hmm. and you either have that in a private suite or in a purely open work area. Right? Yeah. Accessible to public. So th this brings me to a very interesting part about space usage in general. Right? Yeah. If you, if you look at all supply, um, from you know we go back hundreds of years, thousands of years. Everything with real estate has always been for long-term usage. Yeah, I guess so. That's, that's been a very straightforward thing. If you're going to buy a piece of property, if you're going to rent a piece of property, it's pretty much a lifetime deal. Right? There's, there's, no, there's no examples historically of short-term spaces? That only came slowly with pubs and hotels. Right? Mm, interesting. Okay, I see right? what you mean. So yeah, it yeah, only yeah, came okay, when okay. people started to congregate and then yeah. started to happen. Yeah, I see what right? you mean. Okay. But the interesting thing about what we're experiencing right now is that Again, with so much technological and social change, political change, so much change in the world, so much uncertainty, everything that was long-term is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So yeah. what was 30 years before has become 10 years now. What is 10 years before is becoming five years now. Mm -hmm. Five years before becoming three years and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. So here we have this market that everyone's competing again uh, for super short-term users, right? The least yeah. sticky. But what happens to the two-year market? people that are very comfortable with the two-year mark? What are people that three years, five years, 10 years, and there's yeah. so many in between that are completely underserved. And so that's how we came up with, uh, we actually have a new product called the yeah. uh, Agile Office. Yeah. And that is a recognition for so many people that are graduating from co-working space, service offices. Um, still demand, still a lot of these users and these members still can't commit to millions of dollars of renovation. Yeah doesn't make sense because they might only have a two or three year forecast. And that seems to be a sweet spot. A lot of people just only look forecasting two or three years. Yeah. But the problem is that if you're going to spend a renovation budget, it takes 10 years, eight to 10 years to yeah. recoup your renovation costs. Yeah. So this leaves a massive gap in the market for so many people that are looking for custom space, space that is their own brand, optimized for their specific business, right? and their own space and their own company culture, but are not willing to spend for renovation budgets. Uh, and, and they're not willing to look at 10 years. They're looking for a two year solution. So Agile Office is exactly that, right? Mm -hmm. we, we customize exactly what you need, how many meeting rooms you need, how many manager rooms you need, how do you want your discussions to be like? We customize everything that you want and it's ready for you in 60 days at no upfront cost. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying is before this whole, like all this kind of money flooded into this idea of co-working in the way we're describing it now, uh, it was very one-dimensional and you only could have long-term leases, you're saying? That's right. Okay, so that, that's essentially what they're saying. There's a big market that was underserved, uh, room for segmentation and product differentiation. That's right. And, and yeah. the evolution what happened was, uh, you know, probably the early adopters and the users would be startups and people who... Um, only needed a really like one year or less. 
Correct. Right. And then yeah. now with the current evolution of today of what we're seeing is, and I think all the players are probably converged to this at this point, if they're still in co-working, is that what you're saying? Just kind of this middle market of two, three years, right? Yes, that's right. And, and we're doing it in an office-based perspective. That works in just about yeah. every segment as possible. You think about it in a residential perspective. Um, getting Buying a unit and committing for a 35-year mortgage, yeah. it's insane for a lot of people, right? Yeah. And it's, it's a generational thing. Yeah. If you ask millennials and younger, if you ask myself to commit to something for 35 years, that's just insane, right? Well, I think there's if the, you want to yeah. ask me to commit for something for five years, I can, I can, I, that's palatable. Yeah. I can think about what my next five years is going to look like, what my next three years is going to look yeah. like. I mean, I think it depends on what market you're serving. So at the end of the day, if you're aiming to be a freelancer of sorts or even just a small business, I think that argument kind of makes sense. But, you know, for example, if you're a young, growing, fast company who has, who has the capability, um, if they want to scale to a global level or, or multi-regional level, you have to probably invest long-term. Right? So it's just maybe segmenting further. Because I, I think I could see an argument for young people. I think it doesn't have to do with uh, maybe Gen Z or anything, but it has to do with more the fact of who your customer is, right, at the end of the day. It's not just about size. It's not just about size. Um, even if you were a bigger company, you would see that your opportunities may change according with time, right? Yeah. Departments might rise, they might fall. Yeah. You might shut it down. Yeah. And, and so the agility that is given to companies, it's, it's an, across all spectrums, man. Yeah. Yeah. So even if you were to, say, invest into an office space for a big company, what is more likely and much better for the, for the, the big companies would be change, spaces that can change and adapt as you need it. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're trying to build. Okay. Yeah. So what is the competitive landscape now then? Uh, can you speak more, is it just for Malaysia? Can you speak broadly for the region or are we all converging to the same things? Um, I, think, I think the hype from WeWork and uh, it's dying down definitely after the whole Newman crisis. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems that everything points to the fact that this space was just overvalued. There was just too much money in it, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it, it kind of spoiled probably what happened. Um, but it, it's something that's in the process of still being disrupted. But I guess it's, since it's tied to uh, working with long-term assets, it's a little bit sticky with the landlord situation, right? Unless you are the owner itself, there's probably some natural advantage, right? So in the long run, that's believe where I believe it's going to go towards. Operations and ownership is going to be able to merge. Oh, you think so? Absolutely. Yeah. What we're going to see, like, well, our forecast is that you're going to see a whole bunch of REITs, commercial REITs, uh, office space REITs, that are don't just own strategic locations all around the world, but also do the operations part and reimagine space again and again to keep up with demand. Yeah. That's, es- essentially that's what, what we're aiming for. Essentially yeah. what you're saying, there's going to be an unbundling of all these asset owners, which I guess you're saying in a form of REITs, right? Um, and this model has been done before, but in a vertical, right? Hotels. Hotels have done That's this very right. well, right? So right. typically you have a building owner, but the guy doesn't know how to really monetize the asset. And the hotel doesn't want to be asset heavy. So they essentially just operate it, right? And what you're saying is this model, we're taking it to probably everything else which no one has thought about before. Like it's, right. it's possible to bring it to other verticals. Correct. So, Correct. so we're still, so that's what you're saying. It's still very early into the game. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And I love that what you said about that. I mean, you're, you're uh, <laughs> taking a leaf out of our playbook. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we believe that the hotels have figured out this, this long time ago, <laughs> unbelievably well. Yeah. Um, and they've done it with short term stays, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so what, what happens to an office space context? How can, so if we, Think about office space users as much shorter terms. How is property going to be built 
and design and, and how is it going to serve much shorter term users, one years, five years. And you're going to see many different players in the market emerge serving many different segments of the market. So whole new office-based brands. Yeah. So what, what I'm seeing then uh, and thinking about it now actually is that this is a convergence of, you're, you're playing on the other side of Airbnb almost, right? It's a convergence of this because you're talking about mobility. You're talking about needs of living spaces or working spaces. And it's, it's all coming together, you know, taking the hotel model and, and putting it into other spaces so you add more widening the funnel, right? And essentially what happens is that if you want more mobility and you need more agile workspaces, you're just coming from the other end where Airbnb is coming from travel and at some point it intersects, right? And essentially what you have is this probably this, uh, everyone's almost going to be solving the same problem, right? In a sense, it's almost like a platform play, but from travel and kind of work perspective. It's like you said, the operator and owner will merge. Uh, if you want to add add the other layer of uh, population dynamics and where where or people preference of where they want to be, it almost converges to that, right? Do you think? Sure, 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 sure. So this this, this is an interesting part. Let, let, let's build on this. Okay. Um, if we can think about spaces that can be reused again and again and reimagine at a quick pace, then property development is going to change as well, mm-hmm. right? We're going to be building structures. Like, and and are you familiar how it's done right now? No, nope. it's kind of ridiculous. It. Um, so. It takes around five years, five years to get a building up and, and serve to the market. Right? Give us a size. Um, I mean, you got to get more context too, I think. You know, like, what, what, like is there a, a land okay, bank? Is a, there a... Let's take a, just a condominium, for example. Okay, there you go. Perfect. It's like a very simple uh, example, right? Uh, we forecast into the future what people really want, how many bedrooms, how big is the kitchen, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Right? And then we pre-cut all these spaces and we put them to designs buy a piece of property and we pretty yeah. much get going right yeah we start designing it we start building it and then we sell them right yeah that's how most of property development is done uh, and probably uh, in a region is like that i'd say yeah sure like, sure uh, this is kind of crazy to me it's kind of crazy to me. No? it doesn't really make any sense to me uh if you're going to forecast what people want in five years how much how reliable is your forecast really yeah what do people really want in five years from now mm-hmm. uh and I'm going to straight up say it's impossible. Yeah. You don't really know what people want. You don't know what no, no, the economic situation is going to be like. You don't know what the market's going to be like. You don't know what social trends are going to be like. Yeah. So, so why bother? That's, that's my idea, right? Like, mm. why bother? Why, why pretend like you know what you know when yeah. you don't? Why don't you build properties that have uncertainty and have un- adaptability built into it? Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is a total separation between building of a structure and building of interiors. Yeah. If you have really good structures that are uh, modular, that can actually be scaled up and scaled down and reimagined, so the interiors can be reimagined again and again, mm-hmm. right? So what you can actually do is customize it right at the end before, right when the customer actually wants it. So we're doing yeah. a mini scale of that right now in, in office space, right? Yeah, that's actually pretty fascinating. And if you think about it from a residential perspective, you could essentially divvy up even more shares of space, right? Because say if it's modular, it's not fixed to a unit. Like you have one block, you have one unit, X amount of square feet, right? But if you could also go 3D and it's modular, you essentially create, people could buy, you almost create a secondary market of shares of a structure. And then if you, you know, depending on the price and demand of it going up and down, you could buy more shares to get more space and re, then rework how you want that space to be, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the future for, off the, for space usage is going to be Lego, man. Yeah. Lego. It's going to be real-life Lego. And I think that's going to be a really cool part, right? Okay. So, so right now we, we have 
uh, a pretty cool game that we we've come up with. Um, and 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 it's it's a little like Sims, man. Mm-hmm. Like you you can play it and you can like pick and pop what you like, what yeah. kind of flooring you like, what kind of spacing you like, um, and how many manager rooms you need, how many director rooms you need, how many lounges you need, yeah. and then we can customize that. And again, ready in sixty days, right? Yeah. And we, we hope to get to thirty days that we can actually deliver a completely custom space in thirty days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how how does that get powered then? It's, why why aren't the big players doing this? You know, it's it seems like. The guys with the natural advantage would be these already big real estate developers. Um, is, is is this what they're heading towards, or there was a deal that WeWork is actually doing this on an entire property development perspective in in uh, in, in Manhattan? Um, real estate takes time, man. So we don't really know for sure right now. Yeah, and I believe a lot of players are starting to go into this right now. <clears throat> okay, so it's still still early on, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with that with that in mind, then should this be a venture? funded business vc big growth big idea big money or is that a mistake and it just needs you need time because it's a hard problem you need time and you need a lot of de-risking at different levels and then later on it makes sense to do it or so i or, I, I don't yeah. think the vc model is the right way okay uh, I, I believe is debt financing is the right way okay we're talking about usage of space that can be financed itself right yeah. So what we're talking about is real estate players that need to get into this real estate financing that needs to get this on a debt perspective. Yeah. yeah. So in a sense, you're saying all these old players probably could, if they can't figure it out themselves because they have this kind of old machine that's working, they should be funding guys like you to do this. Oh, absolutely. Come work with us. <laughs> <laughs> let me convert your building for you and let me give you strong return on assets. There's interesting models out of Europe where... Um, these venture type builder profiles kind of work with corporate funding, but there's always the kind of argument that corporates really don't know what they're doing. Cause I think a lot of times these guys also want to have a hand in it. They want to have a say in it. Uh, do you think it's possible to work with the corporate then or? Um, so we've tried working with a whole bunch of different landlords and they're all financiers. The problem is, is the mindset yeah. and um, very much stuck in their old ways and old ways of making money. And mm-hmm. if they don't grab onto this new opportunity, they're going to be dinosaurs real soon. Mm-hmm. So the difficulty is how does an old organization, this legacy organizations, legacy real estate companies yeah. change their mindset completely and adapt to the new world? Yeah. And the ones that are going to be able to do that are going to be wildly successful. Yeah. And okay, so say say you take this idea, you're saying it shouldn't be VC, it should be debt financed. Um, and what we mentioned earlier, right? The best way to grow this idea is through community because everyone talks about community for early days co-working but i feel like it's not a very well understood concept and i've I've tried talking to a lot of community managers from different ones around asia and no one could really land on what exactly they're doing and what community they're building but i do think you are hitting upon something of these kind of social demographic trends where there is this portion of demographic people who are disconnected they are feeling separated right um but what does that mean in a sense of growing users for your business. So we have uh, some crazy ideas about this. Yeah, sure, let's go for it, man. <laughs> um, when you're doing it with, with single users, right? So we're talking about like, say, hot test members in a co-working space. Okay. Or um, let's say single unit occupy uh, members at a co-living space, right? Yeah. Um, the community is going to be defined by the operator, right? What values are going to be brought in? What ideas, what common interests are going to be brought in? Um, is going to be defined by the operator. And I have crazy ideas about what community really means, right? And, no. and you can think about community as community as you define, right? Okay, so back to my 
idea about uh, having adaptable, adaptive properties, right? Mm -hmm. Say yourself, Alex, <laughs> as an example. Young, yeah. recently married, I understand. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> we we um, eloped, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you you have a, um, let's say you have a whole bunch of close friends in the similar um, um, like profile, right? Mm -hmm. Say you have a cousin. You have a, another friend and you have a whole bunch of you. Let's say there's four or five couples that share a lot of common values and it's a community of your choice. Yeah. Right. Um, now you can get a space that a living space and a configuration that best optimizes for you specifically in your specific community. Yeah. And, and so let, let's unpack that a little bit. Right. Community. Yeah. Um, community is like a cheat code in real estate. Yeah. What do I mean by that is. Very simply, you have communal space that's shared by everybody and then individual spaces yeah. along with that, right? So co-working does the same, co-living co does the same, all of it does the same, right? Communal space that everybody enjoys and loves sharing it and then individual space around that. Okay. This space saving. That's space saving. If everyone's going to build their own living rooms, everyone's going to build their own kitchens, if you can congregate all that and share all that space savings that leads to space savings cost savings and the crazy part about that is the experience actually improves yeah it's a double win right there cost goes down and experience goes up mm -hmm. and so community is a cheat code for for real estate okay and so if we can sell spaces that you love and you can sell to micro communities that way say 10,000 square feet 20,000 square feet and cut up into a few different segments of individual space and a lot of communal space that everybody's going to enjoy. That's going to be amazing. Right? Yeah. So let, let's just go back to this example. You, you plan to have kids, man? Is that too? <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Maybe. Okay, yeah. let's, let's, let's just say yes. Let's say now, yes. Right? Okay. Just for yeah. The example for our purposes, right? And let's say that four or five couples that you have have the exact same thing, exact, same ideas, your friends, your cousins, your everything, right? Now you can be building communal spaces that optimizes for them. Yeah. Right? We're talking about baby rooms. We're talking about uh, play areas, a whole bunch of different facilities and, and yeah. areas that can highly benefit everybody in that little community. Yeah. So now, again, experience goes up, cost goes down. It's a double win. Yeah. Okay. Then how was this done in the past then? Was there no purpose design? I mean, I think communities what organically emerge based on where you live. Then, if you're let's say you're an old school developer and and you know community is a cheat code. Was was this done before? Because I feel like if you look at really old, and I think we talked about this briefly before, right? If you look at like 1970s, 1980s kind of style, uh, specifically in Malaysia, I'd argue maybe Southeast Asia for like Singapore too, right? You have the really big mega mega complexes that were designed very t you know. Of course, very dense units for economics, but at the same time, you know, swimming pools, multiple swimming pools, right? You don't see multiple swimming pools these days anymore in, in developments, right? You had tennis courts, you had squash courts, you had playgrounds, right? All in this like giant mega complex, I think so, with, the, with the idea of community, right? That's right. That's right. So um, from a cost and space perspective, they nailed it, right? So I, I guess, the, the yeah. part that really is lacking in a lot of real estate is the operations component. Yeah. Right. Again, with co community, uh, co-living, co-working, they've done that part really well, which is the operations component. You can't just have a space. Having a swimming pool, having these mini theaters, mini whatever it is these communal spaces are, 
they don't they're not very valuable until you have a very strong operations right what i mean by that is you look at co-living co and, and co-working what they've done what we've done so well is um they've organized so many different community activities right they really gather that community together and once yeah. that you have that layer that empowers the entire model yeah. Well, I, I get that's that's more of the modern sense of co-working, maybe like in the two thousands, right? But but like in the seventies, I, I think. Oh, well, I guess what would happen? My my hypothesis would be that uh, the cost didn't make sense, so they had to make a giant mega complexes. What what you're saying is that now you could the future should be probably taking this onto a micro level and making even more flexible, right? What what drives the cost lower then? Because if they couldn't do it in the seventies, why why what makes it more accessible now? Um. So so we're doing again mi micro level, right? Yeah. My, my, yeah. My, my micro level. Um. We're not just talking about doing that on a just a like an entire complex level. We're talking about doing that on a very personal level. Right? It doesn't sound very scalable then, right? It is scalable if it's modular. Okay, so yeah, so so, so you're gonna have to solve the piece where. So I guess what's missing in the past is that the economics makes sense when you build one giant block, yeah. right? You get the return on your money, but here you're saying you know uh, you have to innovate a way to make these com these these uh, structures you want to build more modular. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. More modular and doing that on an uh, individual level. Right? Okay. So meaning your individual units can be now have micro-communities in there too. Okay. So are there any players doing this now then? Or are you, do you feel like you're the only guy starting to do this? Or? We're, we're the only ones that we know of. Okay. We've been looking around, around the world trying to see if anyone does this. We haven't seen any yet. Okay. Uh, I mean, also a lot of these ideas probably will start encroaching on other spaces. So like uh, earlier, we were I sent you like House from from uh, US, right? H O U Z Z House, yeah. right? So they they've taken the whole offline um, remodeling industry in America, right? It's like two point seven million professionals on it. They've raised like four hundred million dollars. Uh, they were supposed to IPO this year, but I think it's COVID. They, so they're looking at a SPAC, but um, you know, so that that's like something that eventually. You know, you have a lot of old spaces too, right? And it seems that what you're doing might converge to that. Like, or or do you see that something like house won't work in Southeast Asia? Um, the question is all about tenure, right? Okay. How long of a term are we really talking about? Right? Yeah. If we look at the okay, so the spectrum of, of transient users, right? Everything, let's say, from a daily usage all the way up to say. 10 long, years, okay, right? long, yeah, long. super long term, right? Home, homeowners and this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. that would be the, the extreme example, yeah. right? 35 year mortgage, yeah. right? Um, as we go towards longer and longer usage, the onus for renovations, maintenance, upkeep goes to demand side, yeah, right? On a user level, right? And everything on a shorter basis becomes on a supply side. My hypothesis on this is we're moving towards supply side. Okay. Because everyone's looking at a much shorter term. I mean, sorry, a, a huge part of the market yeah. is looking towards shorter and shorter terms. It no longer makes sense for demand side to be investing into all these capex. Mm. Well, also depends on government initiative, and I guess a good heuristic to look at is like you know percentage of home ownership, which probably be very different in the U.S. Like probably most of the boomer gener generation in the U.S. they're all homeowners, right? Yeah. And you can, can transition the kind of that wealth transfer to the younger generation who's going to take those houses and then can remodel it, right? Yeah, that's which, right. Which, which maybe be different for Asia. Uh, do you have stats on home ownership here? In, Off the top of my head, no. no. Yeah. But I, but I guess what you're saying is like it's a different trend, different shift. You're saying, and I think that's kind of true because uh, most of those countries in Southeast Asia are stuck in the middle income trap where 
um, they haven't been able to become a modern economy of sorts, right? And because of that, the young generation, you know, if, if you have, you know, very low salaries, you can't really buy a home in a very desirable location. So, so maybe that, that might be an economic trend that probably supports your, your thesis, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, so if you, you're talking about home ownership and, and uh, purchasing a property, right? Um, yeah. I think in the demand in Asia is still really strong. Yeah. Right? Uh, if you look at property prices to purchase yeah. as compared to rental yield, Right, these don't make sense. Right? Yeah, these don't make sense across the board. Well, it's because there, there's a big gap of uh, people who own all the wealth and and the people who who don't. Right, so yeah. so I think what happens is all these wealthy people buy the spaces and they sit on it, so it becomes very inaccessible. So yes, that's right. So, so it's, it's it's the main value proposition for a lot of these purchases is store value. Yeah, right. Uh, the usage level is actually really low. If you just drive around Kuala Lumpur, and you you, you you see how many lights are actually turned on at night. The, the volume's really low, right? Yeah. We don't have good stats for this. There isn't good stats. Essentially, capacity utilization, right? It's very low. Yeah. I'm estimating at 30% across the board. Right? Yeah. So that means there's around 70% of spaces that are fully sold, owned by somebody, right? They, they, the property developers sold that, but in actuality of usage, it's unbelievably low. So almost, this, this yeah. to me is problematic. As a millennial, this is problematic. Which is insane because that means all these other real estate developers, you're still seeing buildings in suburbs. Like they keep building more stuff. They're adding more supply. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and the prices don't go down. And right? the crazy part is that is that we keep going through deforestation yeah. to clear out more space for more buildings. Yeah. And that it's nuts. Like as a like as a millennial, we need to think about new paradigms and new models moving forward. Yeah. We no longer can be building things that nobody uses yeah. and keep destroying our environment. So we need yeah. a completely new model moving forward. And almost in a, like in a sense you're saying uh, recycle, reuse. That's right. right? So and, adapt, yeah. we, need, we need adaptive supply. Yeah. Supply that can keep adapting to new demand, right? It, it fits very well in ESG and in climate, the whole thesis around like, you know, needing to, to be more aware of of all these issues that like if you keep destroying your forces you keep building them on the same old world models it's just going to be more destructive right? absolutely it's so, like it's more consumption of feeding to the wrong ideas instead of mm-hmm. looking back you know you, if i mean if your hypothesis or if your numbers are correct 70 percent not used that's insane right that's insane and then people that's are insane. still looking for housing right and they still want to buy more that's crazy yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so um thank, thank god for crypto <laughs> yeah. Actually, right? Like, I think crypto has what? proven the store value problem, right? And yeah. now that this is ramping up, I think a lot of people are going to be looking towards crypto for store value. Yeah. And so the demand for real estate for store value is, is going to go down. So you think right? that's going to decouple? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. all these real estate developers that are building more on the, and they're betting on people storing more value onto, Property, yeah, Th- that's a sunset business, man. Yeah, that's the final chapters. Um, I, I know. I think this kind of argument makes sense, especially in the Asia region where the percentage of arable, livable land is a lot less. You know, I, I think this this model might not work as well with um, you know, countries with a lot of land. Maybe say like the U.S. There's still plenty of land, so um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it might be a little bit different in other parts of the world, right? Yeah. So store value might still work in other places where there's plenty of room to grow, I guess. I don't think that that is going to die entirely. Yeah. That, that is, that's not right. But yeah. it will decrease for sure. Yeah. 
You could also say that, in a sense, the idea of modular or even just like, you know, upkeeping old assets and repurposing them is not that old of an idea, right? Uh, what, what's your take on Oyo? Because that also is similar, no? They, they take these um, two-star two hotels, three-star hotels that, you know, put some makeup on it. And then you know, a lot of people think it's a racket, you know, that it's crazy overvalued. Oh, no, it doesn't I make any, it. You, you love it? I love it. Yeah. Because yeah. it almost seems in a similar vein, right? Where, where you know, they, it's just making something look better, giving more access to distribution and, and you know, getting more, driving more demand to these places, right? It's more affordable. I love it. Yeah. I love it, right? Um, taking these underutilized assets, converting them yeah. into far more, like, and, and churning a yield from these dead assets, yeah. it's, it is the challenge for real estate moving forward. Well, well, I mean, look at it. I mean, so they operate in one vertical, which is a huge vertical of travel and hotels. I mean, of course, COVID kind of probably whacked it really badly, but... Um, would you see yourself staying in an Oyo, a two-star hotel that's you know branded a little bit better, or is there real value created there? So this this is where it gets really interesting, right? There is a problem with uh, there's a challenge with Oyo, and it's the same challenge that I see in in Dojo, my business. Yeah. Um, and that is there's there's essentially two ways to grow over here, right? If you're venture backed, chances are you're going to have to grow that globally really fast. Yeah. Across the board, right? The business model is going to have to hold. At, at the largest levels, even if it's like not proven, which is, it, it can probably backfire. So, so right? if you look at what the OU um, plan is, right? The, the strategy over here yeah. is every single time they go into a new property, they, they convert that property, right? They need to put in a bit of money into making that old asset livable, essentially, yeah. right? So cleaning up a whole bunch of places, improving on, say, the accessibility and, and, and the presentation of it all, yeah. right? Uh, but that... That problem sits on the landlord's problem. So there's essentially two ways to grow over here, right? Yeah. One, you can start a REIT and, and buy a lot of these properties mm. and then do a lot more meaningful conversions. So spending more money into converting that and improving that asset significantly. And another way of doing it is to stay as an operator level and then you grow horizontally. You just kind of grow across the board everywhere. Yeah. So these are the two opportunities that, that arise in real estate. And I think Oyo is venture-backed, right? Yeah. Um, and so they are going to be cho they're choosing to take a more of a global approach yeah. across the board. But that also means they can't convert each asset and each location. There's going to be a limitation of how meaningful they can actually yeah, do Yeah, correct. That. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. So, so that's, there's a trade-off over there that yeah. Oyo needs to make. And I think if, yeah. if you're venture back, you you only have one option. Yeah. yeah. So in a sense, then, uh, if I'm hearing this correctly, if you you know fast forward this to the future, uh, it's going to be very hard to centralize real estate. It should it would, in some sense, uh, you know, it would be a very regional play and it'd be very fragmented. Or it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be one dominant player with this kind of idea. Then we're going to see many players. Man. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it leads to the nature of how, how the business works. You, you could build these, it depends on who holds the assets. Unless someone has so much firepower, they, they can buy all the, all the real estate in the city, right? Which, which is very, very hard, you know, so. Um, it's the nature of the business. Right? Yeah, it's the nature of the um, business. A lot of co-working spaces, and, and, and uh, they, they have this idea that they are a tech company, right? Yeah. And they, they apply same tech principles of one winner takes all. Yeah. That is... Like you said, really difficult with real estate. Yeah, there's always more space. You can't buy every single building in yeah. every single city. 
Yeah. Right? That's, that's trillions of dollars. Right? Well, the, the best way you could do it, and again, going back to hotels, right, is being branded. Yes. Right. So which I think brand builds a very nice moat. So I guess if you think about your business, Dojo, it's like how, how could you tie, you know, the theory has always been community. So I'm still trying to understand how that's a really good growth engine. Maybe it's a stickiness factor more, more than a growth engine. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, it, I mean, Air, for Airbnb, it was a growth engine, at least for early days on the supply side, right? So they, they would, you know, the way they would grow suppliers is you know, get them together, make a community. Oh, you were all in this together. But it feels almost a little bit decoupled now today. Like you kind of don't need that, right? It's just well-known brand. Yeah. So uh, I think the branding is going to be about common values. Like the community is going to be about common values and common interests. Yeah. Very straightforward. Um, so at, at Dojo, we're thinking about what are our common, our values. Yeah. What are the facilities that we want to build on a communal level, right? And if you're really clear about the common interests that you're trying to grow and the common values that you're trying to grow, yeah. that is the brand. Yeah. That is the brand. True. I kind of like what you're saying because it almost feels like no one's looking at the space. And that's kind of the best time to start building and operating and testing. That's when, when Ooh, in the shadows, right? Yeah, the, you know, it's more <laughs> like you're working on a secret and you're trying to figure it out. Um, so, but you know, in that kind of context, what, what's your take on what happened with WeWork, how that turned out? You know, is WeWork going to fade into a reverence? Will it become a normalized business model like any other office kind of space business? Or, you know, will it find its footing again in the, in the context that we're, we're kind of, you know, your thesis on how, how the future looks like? I think it's it's an open open th- uh, suggestion right now. We we don't know uh, where where they're gonna go with this right now. Yeah. All we know is that their current model of rinse and repeat, the exact same thing across the globe, is not working. Yeah. Right. So localization is gonna be key, and how are they gonna be able to figure out all the integrations into many different stakeholders? Yeah. How are they gonna work with real estate developers? How are they gonna work with um, real estate financiers? It's yet to be known, man. Mm-hmm. One thing's for sure, doing it on a global play makes it very difficult. Yeah, for sure. What, what's the clearest insight that you have in this space? What, what, what do people really don't understand that they should understand or that they get wrong? I think everyone thinks that there's only one formula to co-working. Yeah. And that is the early stage startups and the freelancers, Yeah, right? I think that's the biggest problem. I don't think people are realizing how many different segments of the market need adaptive, agile space. Mm. That is the key problem. So we need to broaden our horizons and think about many groups and and many segments that will benefit from this. Okay, cool. All right, let's let's shift gears then. Let's. I mean, hopefully we've uh, earned uh, the trust of the audience to to want to learn about you more now. (laughs) From your insights uh so i saw you went to boston university how was that oh man it's beautiful man boston is a beautiful city yeah you, it's you're... cold though man <laughs> yeah, i guess <laughs> coming from malaysia to to boston right yeah. uh you, you were there for what, two years i did my four years oh you did four years there okay yeah i did my whole undergraduate at bu yeah, what... Strim school of business yeah boston university right that's right uh what's the best thing about boston then rowing on the charles river Rowing. oh so you actually did crew that uh, not competitively, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. It is a beautiful day spent. It's uh, pretty intimidating. You'll see all the MIT and Harvard guys, uh, hardcore, right? <laughs> they're like ripping through the water early oh, in the morning. Yeah, 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 yeah right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you don't stay to the sides, uh, they're going to get you, ask you to get out of the way. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're going to make sure they <laughs> yeah, capsize uh, or something. The yeah. guy is going to tell you, get out yeah. of the way, man. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, when I visited Dollar Oysters, man. That, that was really good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. yes. We have yeah. green oysters there. Uh, and the lobster is great, too. Yeah. 
Uh, tell us about your name, Dewan. What in Malay that means like uh, halls or something? Oh right? yeah. yeah. How did you get your name? Um, this is a product of banana parents trying to give their child <laughs> a strong Chinese name. Okay. All right. So they came up with the characters first. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, the Chinese characters first. So my my ma- in Mandarin is the one. The oh, okay, the uh, one, which means uh, to prosper with yeah. morals. To prosper, okay, that's a good name. <laughs> that's a lot to live up to, man. Yeah, you got to uphold it, right? <laughs> yeah, and uh, then they translated that directly from Mandarin into English, so they want, they want. Okay, that works out. Uh, and you worked actually in as an leasing executive before university. That's right. That's right. Uh, so you were in high school doing real estate work very early on. Then no, no, no. Um, so what happened was I was crazy about basketball, only thought about basketball schools, and only wanted to play basketball. Yeah. And and then I broke my knee. Oh. Right in senior year. So I didn't apply to any of the. Um, so what my mom ended up selling me was, hey, you actually have pretty good grades. You can actually get to like a real school. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know. You're just a hardworking. Yeah, I, I didn't yeah. care about that. All I yeah. cared about was playing basketball. Yeah. Did you try it in school, or you're just good at school? Try at school? Did you try to be like a good academic student or were you just naturally gifted? Um, I didn't try that hard, man. I was, I was one of those students that uh, crammed like crazy. Okay. <laughs> but managed to pull off good grades. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so at the time, I decided to take a, take a gear off and take a job and to reapply to universities. Oh, so you took a gap year. Correct. Okay, yeah. interesting. So a gap year turned out to be three years. Oh wow! So, so, oh, okay. That's that's when you were doing the leasing work. So this is when you got deep into real estate. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Um, there was actually two parts that I was working on. Firstly, um, we launched an event space called KL Live. Okay. So we did a whole bunch of events. Um, you know, the biggest DJ parties, the biggest yeah. rock parties, yeah. uh, all that kind of stuff. And then we ended up doing the redevelopment of the entire property. Hmm. So that was my first taste of real estate. Yeah. yeah, but it seems that you kind of got uh, sidetracked because uh, after that you, you know, after university you did a little bit of work in audit. Yeah. Right. You went to E and Y. Yeah, yeah, oh, you did an internship. internship. Yeah. Uh, why did you do that? Uh, I want to spread. I want. I want to see other industries. I want to see what was, what, what I was interested in. Okay, so that it obviously, not your thing. Absolutely hated it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm that, uh, not built for it. Yeah. And you were seduced to F and B entrepreneurship. Yeah. Yeah. So you were the CEO of Amazeballs. Uh, what was that? So my brother launched a food truck, which became a full-on acai bowl and smoothie business in yeah. LA. So when, okay. So Based in California. I, that's right. So yeah. when I was in Boston, I, I, I didn't care about coming back to KL. Yeah. Um, and I would fly to LA every single child opportunity I got. In fact, I, I barely went to any class. I was, I, was at, <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to grow this business with my brother the whole yeah. time. Amazing experience. Yeah, uh, learned a lot about starting things from the ground up. Yeah, on a real, really on a street level, right? Yeah, you actually. Uh, this was a food truck, right? Or oh yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so we ended up growing a food truck. Then we had a whole bunch of stands all around LA, and then eventually a central kitchen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, yeah. And is it still operating today, or it is? It wow. Is. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. The, so you were able to help scale up your brother and a successful, basically, food business in in, in LA. Yeah, that's right. Um, so why did you come back then? Um, visa issues, man. Ah, I couldn't stay. Visa issues. Yeah. Uh, so you graduated probably. You were working for a year, about right? Or, I actually, didn't, I didn't work at all uh, after graduation. Uh, but just with your brother. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. After okay. working uh, with my brother, visa had had a lot of visa problems staying over there, and so I decided, you know what? 
I'm going to pull a LeBron James, <laughs> my talents elsewhere, <laughs> uh, where I'm appreciated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I decided to come back home, and I, I, I had a strong feeling that all roads pointed back to Asia. Right? Why is that? I felt like Asia was going to be the place for innovation and growth, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, honestly. Malaysia specifically, yeah, I mean, yeah, Asia yeah. in general. General, right? yeah. Um, and so Malaysia, it's part of Asia. Let's go yeah. back to Malaysia for a while and, and uh, figure it out from there. It kind of worked out, right? I, I think that Asia, if, if you compare like the lives of people in the developed countries, they, they set patterns. If you're kind of like born into a certain class, you know, you kind of fit that pattern and you kind of just, you know, expected to work a certain way, run the rat race, climb the ladder, right? But uh, here, I don't know, I feel like, you know, it's, it's still very exciting in Asia. A lot of innovation does happen, right? Especially in Malaysia. I yeah. think Malaysia has one of the most innovative entrepreneurs, man. Yeah. Uh, I come from a long line of entrepreneurs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Then, and when, when you did come back, though, you probably were trying to figure out what you wanted to do. That's right. Yeah. And then you landed in Lazada for a short while. Yeah, that's right. This yeah. is back in 2015. Um, yeah. So was it? This was actually pre Alibaba. Pre Alibaba, correct. Um, Still Rocket Internet at that point. Yeah. yeah. What were you doing? I was doing merchant acquisition. Okay. Essentially, a sales job. Yeah, running running the machine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 They were still growing. The machine. Yeah. Yeah. So so everything was about growing assortment as wide as possible, and I, I think they were probably ramping up marketplace back then, right? Yep. That's right. Yeah. So you was it a good experience? Bad experience? Uh, it was great to see a whole new industry. Uh, yeah. Uh, to see e-commerce and, and to understand the ins and outs and um, curious guys. So I'm the guy. I'd be the guy. I'd be talking to every single department and, and yeah. to every single executive, trying to understand and piece it together. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I, I didn't think that, I felt that I had to go out on my own. Like, mm. I felt like I needed to become the leader that I would follow. What kind of fits the pattern, right? You, very unusually long gap year, right? Uh, did entrepreneurship with your brother, a lot of freedom and sense of ownership, building a, your own food business, right? So it kind of makes sense that, you know, if you're put into a machine, it's very hard to feel comfortable there. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I, 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 I do best with figuring out very abstract concepts and trying to put it together yeah. and um, having a very specific role in an organization and just being that small part of the machine yeah. didn't, uh, didn't resonate with me. Mm. What was the culture like back then? Where? Lazada. In Lazada? Um, it was like grow at all costs, man. Yeah, Hard, hardcore, <laughs> hardcore, cutthroat. Yeah, grow at all course, uh, costs. Doesn't matter what, how you do it, and, and just grow the the assortment as, as as fast and as as possible. Yeah. And what was the worst aspect then for for Lazada back then? Oh man, um, I think I think my, my team had 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 a lot of problems. Yeah. Uh, team dynamics. The team dynamics had a lot of problems. I think there was a lot of cultural differences between a lot of the Europeans that were running the show and mm, not really quite, understanding of yeah. the local markets and the local yeah. merchants and their struggles. So there, there was a big mismatch between expectation of results and, and actual reality. What was the best part then, you thought? Um, I, I think it's it's a pretty big organization, so you're going to meet a lot of people across many different uh, um Departments, yeah, and that's pretty cool. Seeing a lot of things coming together, mm -hmm. but um, which is wildly different from the entrepreneurship side, right? Yeah, like correct. In, in the early stages, you're, you're working with a very a handful of people, yeah, um, and and growing a very small organization. Yeah, very concentrated. That's right. Yeah, much closer, right? Um, then after Lazada, you there was a three-year gap from 2015 to 2018. Yeah. What what happened? 
Um, I was working on Dojo already at that point. Ah, okay. So uh, it was in the works for, for quite a long time then. That's right, yeah. So we actually registered the company in 2017. We were placing, putting all the pieces together mm. during that time, raising funds, um, understanding this opportunity. Yeah. And we were going out there trying to make things happen. The launch date got pushed back, I mean, many times, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we eventually launched 2018. I mean, I think it points to the stickiness that we're talking about, why why it's not so straightforward, like a venture scale business. It's not like you throw money at it, then it just scales, right? It, there's a lot of probably pieces to figure out, to set up. Like, what was that experience like, setting up Dojo? Uh, difficult. <laughs> what was the hardest part? Uh, so you have all these wild ideas and you need a bit of funds to, to, uh, to, to get going. Right? Yeah. Without any track record, that, that was a, definitely a struggle. Yeah. Um, that, that was probably one of the biggest struggles, right? I would no. say the other biggest struggles that going back to what you're talking about, venture back, um, I feel like a lot of startups that come up in Asia, they're not really the zero to one mm. businesses. Yeah. Right? They're copying they're, something, they're, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. The rocket internet uh, formula, right? Yeah. We're talking about a globalization plan. Yeah. This goes back yeah. to what Peter Thiel talks about in globalization, right? Um, and so it's all about understanding what has already worked and already been done in a singular, in an advanced market and bringing that up to less developed markets. And so, yeah. that, that to me is problematic with co-working because yeah. we haven't quite really figured out all these components. Yeah. Right? And Dojo, we're, we're in the process of figuring it out, right? Mm -hmm. All the many different segments of the markets, many different product configurations that's going to work in many different segments of the market. Yeah. That takes a lot of experimentation. Yeah. And so scaling up before really even figuring all of that stuff out yeah. is a problem. Yeah. And I think it's a very good qualification because early stages and for many years, uh, if you're at the heart of community of startups, which essentially co-working was for many years, and it's probably still is to a degree, um, you would see all the types of entrepreneurs that come through, the ones that burn out, the ones that stay, the ones who grow and graduate, right? So I think you have a pretty good feel of of the nature of the, the transients and the people who actually make it work. Um, so I guess uh, for the last part of the, the personal part, you know, I saw your Prestige article. <laughs> what, what, what is Prestige for people who don't know? Uh, it's a magazine. A fancy magazine. It's a fancy magazine. And, I, and there's a common trend of my guests. Uh, there are some guests who are also prestige, but they're of a certain uh, pedigree. So what, what does that mean? Do you, do you have also roots in family business here as well? Or? We do. We do. You do? I have, I have, uh, I have, so this is some interesting story for you, some background yeah. for you. Uh, I, I tried I to search. That, and not, um, not, I couldn't find much, though. I told, yeah, so, so, I mean, we're not that public about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, right which now. makes sense. Yeah. Um, there are two people that are great inspirations to me. Yeah. First would be my great grandfather, mm -hmm. um, and the second would be my grandfather. The OG entrepreneurs of oh, Asia, yeah. right? The real, the real people who built Asia. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So uh, it starts off with my great grandfather that came to Malaysia as a slave. Oh, he came as a slave. He came as a slave. That's right. Wow. Uh, from where? Um, from Namwa, uh, China. China. Okay. Which China. part of China is that? Fujian province. Fujian, the south. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Hokkien. So, so you're Hokkien's family. I am Hokkien. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you came here as a slave, man, and uh, that's crazy. They had slaves back then, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. That's not long ago. Man. And you're talking like from China down. Yeah. Do you know the story or? Uh, so I mean, like, it wasn't documented that well. Okay. So, so yeah. I, I'm living through um, stories, all these stories. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. You know the great uncles. Yeah, and, yeah, of and course. Stuff like that, right? Um, so yeah, he came here as a slave and uh, very entrepreneurial guy, very innovative guy, and he was great with his hands. Yeah. So what he would do is build little things, man. Build okay. little things, build little things, and, and, and he decided, you know, I'm going to build houses now. 
Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and, and he made a deal with his owner and he said, hey, I, I think I can make you a lot of money. <laughs> so if I, if I make you enough money, uh, um, you're going to grant me my freedom, right? Yeah. And that's exactly what he did. He built enough houses with his hands, sold enough of it, and he ended up buying his own freedom. Can you imagine that paradigm that in order to be free, imagine like, you know, motivation. <laughs> like, like what is more motivating oh, yeah. than you know, getting free? Your like, life. yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this is the real entrepreneurship, right? <laughs> yeah. Not, oh, not, yeah. not, not what we have today. Uh, today, entrepreneurship uh, is so accessible. You know, if you're young, it, it's almost like a no-brainer. Like if you do it, you know, you're probably going to be fine. You know, you'll learn something, right? But but man, that's that's a really crazy story. You're talking about stakes being high. Yeah, right? Yeah, this is the <laughs> ultimate stake. It's so nothing like what it is now. Yeah. Which is amazing. So he built the foundation for your family in Malaysia then, right? Not quite. Not quite? Not quite. So tragedy ended up happening, man. Okay. The Japanese came. Ah, yes. World War II. World War II came. And what was crazy about that whole story was he ended up... So when the Japanese came, they had, um, they had a very simple strategy, right? They, yeah. they, they, they would round up all the, the community leaders, essentially, right? Yeah. So to suppress any kind of militia or any kind of uprising. So my, grand, my great-grandpa ended up becoming a slave again. For the Japanese. To the Japanese. Oh, that's crazy. So he started yeah. off a slave, built fortunes. Yeah. And lost, lost it all. And yeah. became a slave all over again. So fortunes was, was, was made. Yeah. And fortunes were lost. Yeah. And that brings me to my grandpa. Okay. Started from nothing. Yeah. <laughs> again. <laughs> started yeah. all over again. He's, he's, so I guess he's born in the, the war period time then. That's right. Yeah. 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 Which yeah. everything was broken, destroyed. and. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, he ended up becoming a merchant and a trader, mm. and he got into, he, he sold many different things, uh, eventually landed uh, jukeboxes. Jukeboxes of all, jukeboxes. Of all yeah. things. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the story goes like this, right, that he was, uh, he was selling his jukeboxes, and he was really marketing and selling it to everybody, and, and he was sitting there one day, and he was looking at the jukebox, and he was thinking to himself, you know what, man, the value isn't in the jukebox. <laughs> The values in the music. That's what, what an insight, man. What an insight. He ended up start, starting Life Records or, or in Mandarin, Li Fong Chang Pian. Okay. And that became the recording label that signed Teresa Tang. Wow. Okay. So all that classic hits yeah. from, from, from Teresa Tang, that was my grandpa, man. Wow. Yeah. Ta- yeah. From wow. nothing. Yeah. To that, right? So, so what a guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I guess, is that business still going on or? Um, it has a lot of problems, obviously, with, yeah. uh, with uh, you know, the recording label being disrupted tremendously by the internet yeah. and, and yeah. all that. So it, it's running at a small scale right now. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, our mutual friend, Dave Chang, like, we, we had a pretty good discussion on IP and music, but I, I think, you know, um, the beautiful thing about content and IP, and you know, if you if you own that, it's something that could be scaled up and reused and shot around the world. Of course, yeah, it's learning how to maybe in this new of age of information, repurposing that and, and looking at that. Um, which I guess, you know, how do you think about that that business fitting or the idea fitting into what you do now? Right, this got to be part of culture, community, uh, the music community as well, right? You know, like uh, we, we talk about this problem where every time I come into dojo to set up, I have to re break everything down, build it back up. You know, like do you do you have an idea of building communities for content creators? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah? Um, so that's one of the segments that that's very interesting to build, right? Yeah. Um, content creators, event organizers, anybody that wants to congregate and have a good time and, and like create magic, essentially, right? Yeah. Um, 
it is unbelievably problematic for people to set up, then tear down again, set up and tear down again. And I think you can see a couple of uh, really cool business models around the world. I think they call it events hotel. Okay. Um, not many around the world. I think there's uh, a couple in Europe. Yeah. There might be one in Singapore. They take out a pretty big size, maybe at 30, 40,000 square feet. Yeah. Um, and they purposely design really cool facilities and event spaces for many different kinds of scenarios, right? So podcasting stations, yeah. so, um, you know, people that want to do live events and, uh, you know, Facebook Live, Instagram Live, whatever, right? Uh, press releases, uh, different kinds, all different kinds, so they end up having many different rooms. So it becomes plug and play for a lot of these people, right? Yeah. You come in, everything's set up, acoustically is awesome, visually is already awesome, lighting is already there. You come in, you set up, you get going, right? Yeah. And, uh, Again, very adaptive spaces, yeah. right? Yeah. That's super cool. I guess the tricky part then would be trying to figure out the supply-demand balance because I, I would imagine, say say you could actually scale up this idea as, as, as a you know, content creator, podcaster, I would probably be fighting for spaces at a very hot location, right? And then it depends how many stations you have available for me to sit down with my guests and I have to, then I have to worry about booking and it gets kind of messy, no? It does, right? Uh, well, yes and no, right? It's a, it's a calendar issue. Right? Yeah, there isn't isn't very hard with that. Man. Yeah. To be honest with you, you can always scale up, build more of these spaces. Yeah, and correct. For anybody that has any kind of long term usage, you're just going to be buying and blocking out spaces and, and time slots. Yeah, true. Okay, fair enough. I, I think you know uh, we have a lot of good insights on on you know the the co working space and how that's evolving. Um, so primarily, if you're to say in one concise sentence, what is the future then? For real estate. Yeah. Well, for you know what you're doing in, in co-working, co-living, and, and real estate. Adaptive spaces built around community. Okay, perfect. Last question then. So, uh, again, episode 25, we had Dave Chang. Uh, we briefly talked about the idea of angel investments uh, and how he likes to work with specific profiles of entrepreneurs and um, what makes a good you know, target for uh, investing in a specific entrepreneur. And, and that's kind of a founder who's deeply invested in their problem. Um, and, you know, they, they wouldn't mind chipping away at the problem for the rest of their life. Uh, is, is that you as your profile? I, I think so. I think yeah. so. I'm, I'm a pretty obsessive person that loves to ponder a single question for years. Yeah. And you've been, and you've been doing uh, this co-working space for, what, for almost close to four years now, right? That's right. Yeah. Where a lot of people probably will be churning out or um, they might not think about innovation or have crazy ideas. I think behind every business, if you really look at the founders and if you really look at the, within who they are, it's all about that intention and desire, right? Yeah. Where, where, where does that come from, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And, and what is it they're trying to achieve? Right? Yeah. I think in this day and age, entrepreneurship is a very sexy kind of uh, title that everyone wants to, <laughs> <laughs> wants to have. Yeah. Right? You know, um, everyone's an entrepreneur these days, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but, but why? Yeah. Why, right? I think not many people ask that question, why? What is it you're trying to achieve? Like to me, I feel I'm trying to figure out how we can reuse spaces and save the environment, right? Mm. And, and that is the core of why I do what I do, right? How can we reuse spaces, make it a lot more meaningful for people to use and save the environment at the mm. same time? That's where I'm coming from. So everything else can change, but that won't change. 
Yeah, I mean, you set up the, the last question perfectly. I was going to ask you why. <laughs> so, so I guess I have to go one level, level deeper and ask, where does that come from then? Man, I don't know, man. I don't think anybody knows, to be <laughs> honest. That, that's one of those things is like... You wake up and it's just there, right? You just feel it. Right? Yeah. Like it's deep yeah. within you and you got it. You just got to do it. Yeah. And I don't think I truly know where that comes from, right? Mm -hmm. But it, that drive is just there. Yeah. And I feel my job is to stay true to that drive. Yeah. And that's the only thing I can do. And I, I think that, you know, with enough time and if you keep improving yourself and you keep growing... If you keep chipping out away at this, you know, and if you, you know, you keep finding those insights and solving those problems, man, you're going to hit some success for sure. I hope so. All right, man. I think it's a perfect place to end. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right. Hey, listeners. Thanks for listening to another episode of EOA. As usual, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family or anyone who would benefit from it. Help rate and review us on your podcasting platform. All the love given helps us spread more love. So what did we learn in this episode? I think from a building or investing perspective, there is a very fascinating framework that emerges after listening back to what Dewan had to say. Mobility seems to be the key idea here. In a modern society, technology has driven us to often live in disparate worlds. There are huge trends to remote work and travel. More travel means more types of community emerging, powered by Dewan's idea of agile-driven spaces, which ties to a mobile lifestyle and mobile communities. I see that travel, living, and work will get shaped very differently than what we are seeing today, and Dewan's ideas being at the center of many of those facets. I hope you guys learned something too. See you guys back here for next week's episode. EOA out.